Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 50, Vassals. To start off, as always, I've got three Patreon supporters to thank. First, Rosa for increasing her pledge. Thanks a lot, Rosa. Then, Todor Penef. And finally, Travers McCord. Thanks so much to all of you, and yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch soon. Last time, we left off with the devastating Battle of Maritza, in which what power remained in southern Serbia following the collapse of the Serbian Empire was broken. Then, within two years... In response to the Byzantines accepting Ottoman sovereignty, a revolt by the sons of the leaders of both states, Byzantine and Ottoman, brought a fresh civil war to the region. That civil war began when Byzantine Emperor John V was away in Venice to meet with the Pope and discuss his debts, as well as the relationship between the Eastern and Western churches. While he was gone, his 25-year-old son and co-emperor Andronicus began a rebellion against a father that he clearly saw as weak for becoming an Ottoman vassal and selling a Byzantine island to pay those Venetian debts. Now, quick note here. Interesting, Andronicus was actually married to the daughter of Tsar Ivan Alexander. So he was the brother-in-law of Ivan Shishman and Ivan Stratzimir, both in uh, you know, ruling in Vidin and Turnovo. So for the Ottomans, on the other hand, Savchebe was the youngest of Murad's three sons. This meant, like so many younger brothers, he felt a bit overshadowed by his two older siblings. But the problems went much further than that. Now, this seems like a good time to mention one of the more interesting elements of how the Ottoman Empire functioned. See, during its early phase, the Ottomans did not look to the eldest son of the sultan to be the heir automatically. They looked to the strongest of the sons. This meant that any of the sons could in theory rise to succeed their father. But it also meant that there was a frequent policy of fratricide, whereby whichever son did become sultan would kill every one of his brothers to prevent the rest from overthrowing him. These policies would evolve over the course of the empire, and we'll discuss those evolutions as they come, but for now, what's important is that Savchebe had plenty of reasons to be afraid and to rebel against his father. So, yeah, he had two older brothers to worry about, and knew that his death was likely should his father die. Savchebe also rebelled when his father was away, much like Andronicus did. The young son took the Ottoman treasury, used it to gather an army, and, well, the fact is that this just happened to kind of occur at roughly the same time as the rebellion of Andronicus. It's just a coincidence. But these two men saw that their interests were aligned and that much could be gained through cooperation. Murad and John quickly returned to combat this joint rebellion. The armies of the fathers and their sons met southwest of Constantinople. Though, to be clear, the Byzantine Empire was so weak that at this point it could hardly muster soldiers to even fight its own civil war. 
Thus, the vast majority of the forces involved on both sides were in fact Ottoman. But back to the battle. Murad managed to convince the forces of Savchibay to come over to his side before the real fighting had even begun. Thus, this battle ultimately never really happened. We don't have a lot of details about it, but it doesn't seem like a proper engagement ever occurred. The two rebellious sons, seeing their forces gone, fled the battlefield, but surrendered within the year. Murad originally planned to blind his son in, as punishment, but he ultimately changed his mind and had the boy executed. Murad now had two remaining sons who could succeed him. John V, on the other hand, decided to be more merciful. He only took out one of his son's eyes as punishment for the rebellion. Andronicus was then sent to a prison in Constantinople, and his brother Manuel became co-emperor in his place. All this happened in 1373, so this joint civil war was over rather quickly, within a year. But around this period, the Ottomans were also making significant advances into the Rudopi Mountains from the north, attacking from their base in Plovdiv. Now, these mountains are much lower than others in the region. They stretch out over a far wider area. They sort of curve downward from what's now southern Bulgaria into northern Greece. These mountains have always been home to many powerful fortresses. Because, and trust me, I was there just a few weeks ago spending five days driving through the mountains, and this is really true even today, that it's hard to get through them. There have been times when I've been trapped in a, in a village there because some rocks fell down and blocked the road. So even now, this can occur. The Rudopi, they just stretch out so over such a huge area, but in spite of their size, there actually are not that many passes through them. Again, if you, you know, go on Google Maps today and look at kind of north-south roads moving through these mountains, there's not a lot. So if one road is blocked, it'll take you a long time, even by car, to drive around it. So you can imagine it's always made sense to build powerful mountaintop fortresses to control those passes. Today, you can see many of the fortresses like those of Tsarasen or Momchil if you travel through the Rudopi. But anyways, these fortresses did not surrender easily to the Ottomans. They advanced, taking one fortress after another, but in general, they were taken when the garrisons surrendered under generous terms. It's a theme we'll see with the Ottoman advance all around, that often the Ottomans don't have that much of a military advantage. But what their enemies do not have is good morale. They feel powerless. They don't see what the point is in resisting the Ottomans if their own leaders can't seem to do very much. And so they get good terms and they surrender. Actually assaulting one of these mountaintop fortresses would have been a major challenge for the Ottomans, who are much more comfortable in open battle on the plains. But still, the Ottomans advanced, taking fortress after fortress, valley after valley. Occasionally, this did result in intense fighting and ambushes, with Ottoman commanders losing their lives. But in the long run, there was little the people of the Rudopi could do to prevent this conquest, as once again, no help was sent from Tornovo. By the time the Byzantine-Ottoman Civil War occurred, most of the Rudopi Mountains had been conquered. Either at this moment, 
1373 or a bit later in 1376, we don't know the exact date, Ivan Shishman, in response to the Ottoman conquest of the Rdopi, as well as a complete lack of support from either his half-brother in Vidin or the Despotate of Dobruja, agreed to become an Ottoman vassal. Now, I want to be clear about what that meant, because the Byzantines were also Ottoman vassals at this point. Being a vassal did not mean you ceased to exist as a state. It simply meant that you formally recognized yourself as a subject of the Ottoman Sultan, paid an annual tax, and supplied soldiers if asked. Critically, this did not prevent the Ottomans from actually raiding your territory or even outright conquering it. Honestly, it's an odd situation, because it forces you to ask why anyone would become an Ottoman vassal. Perhaps it was to buy time, or with the understanding that this would put you in a more favorable situation, personally, should the Ottomans make further conquests. But in any case, it happened. As part of the vassal agreement, Ivan Shishman sent his sister, Kera Tamara, to be part of Murad's harem, though Shishman did manage to delay the actual transfer for years. Now, a bit more clarification here is necessary. First, Kera Tamara had been married before, though we're not exactly certain to who, but in any case, now she was a widow. She was considered a great beauty, but her entering the harem didn't really mean she was becoming a kind of sexual slave to the sultan. You know, it, That impression is of the harem, of what it is, is really a Western fantasy invented much later. The harem was in fact simply an imperial court, a part of the imperial court, which contained women, including the wives and daughters of the sultan, along with female relatives, slaves, and male eunuchs who sort of tended to all of them. So again, if the, if the harem was in fact this sort of you know, den of sexual perversion, the sultan wouldn't be keeping, say, his daughters there, but it was really just sort of the female portion of court life. So Kera Tamara's entrance in the harem did not mean she became, didn't mean she necessarily became some sort of sexual slave to Murad. In fact, she just became another of his wives, though they never had children. In, in this sense, she was actually sort of a prisoner designed to maintain that vassal relationship. And this was far from unprecedented. As you'll remember, we've seen the Bulgarians and the Byzantines exchange prisoners and marriage alliances to, main, to maintain relationships many times. So it's far from unique. But what's interesting is that Kera Tamara did actually remain a Christian and lived out the rest of her life in the imperial harem. So she did sort of refused to convert to Islam, but still uh, maintained a sort of dignified life as one of the wives of the Sultan. Now, I did mention that the Ottomans could still attack their vassals, but Bulgaria becoming a vassal in this case did lead to a more peaceful period between the two states. But besides some sort of occasional small raids, the Ottoman conquest really quieted down for a couple years. Still, trouble was brewing elsewhere. Back in Constantinople in 1376, the Genoese, acting from their base in Galata, freed the one-eyed Andronicus from prison. The reason they did this was that, if you'll remember, Emperor John V had just sold an island to the Venetians, Genoa's great rival in the sort of naval power and trade game of the Mediterranean. 
Thus, Genoa was very concerned about its position with the Byzantines and decided that helping Andronicus get on the throne would bring them a secure ally against Venice. The Genoese also paid for an Ottoman army to help Andronicus out. These forces helped the one-eyed prince successfully take Constantinople and imprison his father and younger brother. In exchange for their help, the Genoese were given that very island that had just been sold to Venice to pay imperial debts, while the Ottomans were granted full control of Gallipoli, which, if you'll remember, had been retaken by the Byzantines during the Savoyard Crusade. So, so much for the small gains against the Ottomans that had been made during that crusade. They were now just sort of given away in exchange for one emperor replacing another emperor. Upon taking the throne, the new Emperor Andronicus IV made his son John VII his co-emperor. However, this strong move to ally Byzantium with Genoa came just at the moment of a fresh new war between Venice and Genoa. And this was no coincidence, because that war was largely fought over the status of that very island that had just been sold to Venice and then given to Genoa. European states like Hungary and Austria, and quite a few others, lined up on either side of the conflict as it commenced. Now, the details of the war aren't terribly important, but in 1379, John and Manuel escaped from prison and made it to Sultan Murad. An agreement was reached whereby the last real Byzantine enclave in Anatolia, the city of Philadelphia, would be given to the Ottomans in exchange for their assistance. As Andronicus was an ally of Genoa, Venice, of course, joined in this sort of anti-Andronicus alliance. Thus, with an Ottoman army and the Venetian navy at their side, John V and his son Manuel successfully retook Constantinople, forcing Andronicus to flee to the Genoese colony of Galata across from the Golden Horn from Constantinople proper. Within two years, Venice had won the entire war, in addition to getting their ally back on the Byzantine throne. Ultimately, the two sides more or less cut the baby in half, to use an American expression. They decided to actually depopulate that island that they had been fighting over and destroy all of its fortifications. This effectively turned it into neutral territory because it could no longer provide tax revenues or defend itself, and so it was useless to anyone. Kind of an interesting solution to the conflict. But I want us to focus more on what happened in this second stage of the civil war between Andronicus and his father. The Ottomans helped Andronicus IV gain the throne and were given Gallipoli in return. Then they assisted the enemies of Andronicus in retaking Constantinople in exchange for Philadelphia. They played both sides and they won no matter who came out on top. This was the brutal reality of Byzantine weakness in this period. The state was so weak that for anyone to take the throne required soldiers that the Byzantine state didn't have. So, the Ottomans were becoming the sole source of the manpower needed for things like this. Thus, with each additional civil war, the Ottomans could extract more and more concessions as they slowly expanded their holdings. Now, in previous civil wars, some outside power may have helped one side in exchange for gold, or territory, or an alliance, but they were simply assisting. In these cases, 
often both sides of the battle were using Ottoman soldiers. The Ottomans were becoming the only game in town. And thus, each additional civil war basically by definition was making the Byzantine state weaker and weaker and weaker. Now, on the other hand, a quick note, in 1377, while that civil war was raging, Vladislav I of Wallachia dies and is succeeded by his brother, half-brother really, Radu I. Radu would almost immediately fight off new attacks by Hungary, intended to subdue Wallachia, but things in the Balkans were still fairly quiet for a few years after that. Though this was around the time when Sultan Murad instituted a new system for the slave soldiers that he was taking from his victories. So, now a time to talk about this. The new version was a more formalized, uh, was in general, and really designed to further its original goal of bringing more power to the Sultan directly at the expense of the Ottoman nobles. Bear in mind that many of the Ottoman raids and conquests were actually being carried out by those nobles and not by the Sultan and his forces directly. The nobles were very autonomous, which made them powerful tools of conquest. They had the authority to strike when they saw an opportunity and to, you know, be intelligent, uh, independent actors. But of course, that autonomy also made them dangerous. They could potentially gain enough wealth and power to challenge the Sultan directly. So, Murad sought to check them. To do this, instead of simply taking 20% of the slaves resulting from the Ottoman conquests for himself, as he had done previously, Murad expanded beyond slaves taken in war to what came to be called the Devshirme, or by later writers, the blood tax. Now, in this system, every few years, young Christian boys, generally between 8 and 10 years old, from conquered Balkan territories, would be taken from their families, converted to Islam, and raised with the best possible education as a slave of the Sultan. Once they had matured, depending on their skills, the boys would enter the service of the palace, the scribes, the religious elite, or most commonly the military. If they entered the military, they would enter either the cavalry or the infantry. The infantry portion was called Yenicheri, meaning the new corps, which has sort of been anglicized to Janissary. Over time, the term Janissary will be referred, used to kind of refer to both this entire institutions as well as the people within it. Now, I think it's really important to mention here that the Janissary Corps exists or will exist for a very long time, and it's going to evolve and change tremendously during that period. What I've described just now is its earliest form. Now, I want to address this system and the way it's commonly portrayed today. Because, to be clear, in so many ways, the Devshirme was a brutal system. It tore children away from their homes, their families, their communities, and their religion. Sometimes families would mutilate or disfigure their children to prevent them from being taken. But on the other hand, sometimes it wasn't. Now, this likely didn't apply in these early years when the system was just being established. It didn't have a reputation. But over time, many parents actually lied about their children's age or bribed officials so that children would be taken into the Janissary Corps. Now, why would they do that? 
Why would some families mutilate their children to avoid them being taken, while others would bribe someone so their children would be taken? Well, because well, human beings are complicated. Let's put it that way. Human beings have different values. Some people care tremendously about their religion and about their community, about keeping their family together. Other people simply want their children to excel and to, to be more educated and wealthier and to have more opportunities than they do. We can see this today. You look at people around you. Some people will, you know, some people living in poor countries will do anything to get their children to a wealthier country where they'll have more opportunities, even if it means really abandoning their family and their culture and everything they've known back in their original country. While others will kind of sternly reject this and will do anything to keep their family as it is as a strong central unit and to maintain their traditions. So think about it in that context. But this also ties into what I see as kind of the central irony of the Dev Shirme, is that it was simultaneously brutal, but also progressive. Now, progressive in the sense that with this system, the poorest child from the tiniest village in Bulgaria, Serbia, Albania, other Balkan states, could rise to become a grand vizier, a position that was will eventually develop within the Ottoman Empire, which is kind of like prime minister. They could also become a great general, great admiral. And so I would argue that Dev Shirme was, on the one hand, this brutal system for taking children away from their families, and yet it was also a system which allowed for social mobility that was unheard of in Europe at this time. The larger point here is, besides that point I just made that humans are humans, but that things are complicated, history is complicated, and that a system can simultaneously be, simultaneously be progressive and sort of brutal. And I think we need to, especially as we enter the Ottoman period, work hard to keep both those things in our head and understand that the Dev Shireme system and the Janissaries are portrayed as being only one thing for their entire existence. You know, the idea is that this, this sort of blood tax, the taking of children occurred for the entire history of the Janissaries. It didn't. And that it was always resisted by the people who it was done to. It wasn't. It's really, you've heard me say this before. If there's one thing I learned in all my education is that it's always more complicated than you think it is. And I just think this is a good example of just how complicated it is. So again, I'll talk more about the history of the Janissaries as we get to them and as they evolve over time. So back to the narrative. As this more kind of peaceful time is ongoing, after the, the Ottomans you know, obtain Bulgaria and Byzantium as their vassals. In 1381, Ivan Stratzimir breaks off relations with the Patriarchate in Ternoval and decides to place Vidin under the jurisdiction of the Patriarchate of Constantinople instead. Now, honestly, at this point, I'm a little confused about Stratzimir's religion. Remember, uh, sources had talked about him converting to Catholicism when he was a prisoner of the Hungarians. Maybe he's still Catholic, maybe he's Orthodox, but his religion relative to this decision is kind of an interesting question. But in any case, what is clear is that this decision marked a strong move away from Tornoval just at the moment when unity was needed to resist the Ottomans. It was a snub by Stratzimir against his half-brother. Also, around the summer of 1381, the Ottomans themselves faced a setback. 
An army led by Sultan Murad himself was defeated in central Serbia by Prince Lazar of Serbia. The most powerful of the leaders who kind of rose up in the aftermath of the collapse of the Serbian Empire. So he's not a Serbian Tsar, but he's the closest thing you could find to that. Now again, we don't have any real details to this battle, but a victory like this against the Ottomans was certainly rare for the period, and so it's significant. Also that same year, remarkably, and I do mean remarkable, this quite baffles me, following two years of hiding out in Galata, Andronicus IV is actually allowed to return to Constantinople and become co-emperor once more. Now, how on earth his father and his brother allowed this man who rebelled against them twice to return to power is a complete and utter mystery to me. But, I don't know, the sources talk about it happening and there's no specific reason to kind of doubt them besides the general strangeness of the claim. Besides this, sometime in the early 1380s, we don't know exactly when, Radu of Wallachia managed to end his very short reign and die. His son Dan I took the throne and shortly afterwards went to war with Bulgaria. In this conflict, Ivan Stratimir sided with Wallachia against his half-brother ruling in Turnival. The war between the Wallachians saw them taking several cities and fortresses along the Danube before Dan I was assassinated in 1386, ending the war. Now, nothing much seems to have changed as a result of all this, but it did signal the ever-deepening distrust between the half-brother ruling in Vidin and Turnival. They were willing to go to war with each other over nothing in particular, just because Dan I decided he wanted to sort of expand his uh, trading hubs and, and kind of control over the Danube. Even with that Ottoman threat to the south, even with it clear as day to anyone who wants to look, these kind of portions of Bulgaria are still totally willing to go to war for silly reasons. So upon the death of Dan I, his brother Mircea became the new ruler of Wallachia. Now, while that war was going on, making the whole thing even more remarkable, the Ottomans were actually laying siege to Sofia, one of the larger cities in Bulgaria at this time, and a vital point at the intersection of several trade and communication routes. Initially, Ottoman attempts to storm the city walls failed completely. But eventually, someone managed to lure the city commander out of the walls to go hunting. There, he was captured by the Ottomans. Leaderless, Sofia surrendered. The way into Serbia, further into Serbia, more easily into Serbia, was now open. Turnovo had been busy fighting Vidin and the Vlachs, while one of the great cities of its empire was lost. And once again, a city that could have very well resisted the Ottomans more or less gave up because of a lack of morale, because no relief army was sent, because no one seemed to care enough. And we're going to end it there, at that low point. With Bulgaria and Byzantium both having become vassals of the Ottomans, fighting civil wars and weakening themselves further and further as Sultan Murad takes advantage of every opportunity for advancement. Next time, we're going to see what the Ottomans will do next. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. So, as always, uspech, or in English, good luck.